planetpipe.com. Pipe music stretching far beyond Scotland from the USA, Canada, Ireland, Spain, France, Australia, Eastern Europe, and Japan. Unearthing new talent and presenting the best pipe music worldwide. I'm Lauren McDougall and welcome to this week's Planet Pipe podcast. This week's sponsors are the National Piping Centre, currently busy with their new e-learning initiative. Uh, There's some great lessons up there already from the likes of Chris Armstrong. It's a great website where you can either join lessons as they happen or watch the ones that have been happening in the past on demand. You can check that out at elearning.thepipingcentre.co.uk. This week I'm going to be chatting to Jim Sutherland, producer of many's a great album and a fine musician and composer himself. Last year he produced this track from the Disney Pixar film Brave. Here's Julie Fowlis with Touch the Sky. It's a bit unusual to have a non-piper on the show, but this week's guest is just that. We're very lucky to have on this week's Planet Pipe podcast a very busy man and a producer of some of the greatest piping classic records from back in the day. We were just speaking about how the the album that that I was certainly thinking of when I thought of Jim Sutherland's production um, was being Gordon Duncan's Just for Seamus, but he's produced a heck of a lot more than that and he joins me down the line now. He is Jim Sutherland. Hello, Jim. Hi, Lauren. How are you doing? I'm doing very, very well. Now, let's get started by speaking about production. Um, it's it's a, a word that lots of people use, and it's a fairly loose word these days, I think. Um, it sometimes can mean anything from, you know, the guy that phones and books the studio or the, the guy that actually pulls everything together and basically makes the album. But from those early albums, from a piping perspective, take, for example, just for Seamus, could you tell us a bit about what your role would be when it comes to producing a, a piping album? Well, it does change from person to person, and it's an, it's an interesting thing, because for me, producing a piping album isn't that hugely different from producing any other kind of album. And you have to really be looking at the people who are involved in it, and it, a lot of the time, a lot of the time, production is about, it sounds really boring, but it sounds like it's a, it's, it seems to be about people management in a way. And I don't mean, you know, getting people in the right place at the right time, although that's part of it. But also, um, actually, uh, just trying to get 
you know, good performances, get people in the right frame of mind. And and the, that whole kind of psychological side of production is something that I think is really important. You know, just being, I think it's a, a lot of it is to do with empathy and respect. And I suppose those are my two main, um, you know, apart from music, I think empathy and respect are the kind of key elements of producing anything. And that that goes for for piping albums. And certainly with Gordon, that was true. Okay, can you remember much about what actually happened when you were recording that album? I mean, how how did you work? Was it all live takes? Can you remember as much as as that? There was a, it was a mixture of stuff. I mean, Gordon was pretty amazing. He could he could just kind of play with a click track and get a feel, you know, and he would be able to do that. I don't like click tracks much, but some things we did were kind of programmed. I mean, we're going back twenty years for that album, mm-hmm. and so the programming on it, um, you know, drum programming and stuff wasn't really. Um, uh, very sophisticated, but it was. It seemed to do a job, you know. And so there was bits and pieces of that. There was per, there. There was also performance. So there were live takes involved in it as well. Mm. And we got we got other musicians in to to perform on certain tracks. But the main thing for me about when you produce a solo artist um, like Gordon, you the main thing is to to you know it's a bit like you know. Being a chef, you you have to. If you cook a steak, you've got to make sure that the steak is the centerpiece of the of the meal, you know, and that you don't introduce a whole bunch of flavors that overpower the steak. Mm-hmm. The steak's a pretty good one, you know. You can. It's a strong flavor, and so are the bagpipes in that sense, you know. It's, um, but nevertheless, they 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 still require a delicate um, touch to 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 maintain the. Um, the character of the instrument and the character of the music. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting analogy because uh, I certainly think uh, I, I, almost the opposite to that. Maybe I don't have a very good steak to work with to start with sometimes, but <laughs> I think about my own music, I always think each each track I want different sounds. I, I do want to, to colour it up a wee bit. Um, but I guess that's just different different, different years, different ways of thinking. Um, but I certainly think it worked for 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 an album like just for Seamus. You know, you're you're right. It's the fuels there, the pipes are the centerpiece. Everything else is just built around it. Well, Gordon's amazing. You know, yeah. Gordon was you know um, just an amazing piper. I mean, Gordon had had his own um, uh, idiosyncrasies as a, as an as a person, mm-hmm. and and you know, so being in the studio with Gordon, he would be he. he he, you know, he was quite anxious in the studio as a, uh, you know, as a musician, and that was one of the things that was really important to manage was Gordon's own anxiety about doing something good, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, although he was always, he was also this, his persona um, to the world was a quite a confident individual who was, you know, ah, you know, <laughs> but actually he cared a lot about his music and 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 you know, if you care about your music and you've got that passion, then that can be quite an it can be quite an emotional time in the studio I think in that in that sense so that was quite a really Im- kind of important part of the relationship that Gordon and I developed when we were working together so it would be you know he was also somebody that would have ideas he wasn't just kind of you know like yourself you know you, you he wasn't you know he was one of the pipers who of his era who who was um coming out with ideas that weren't just piping ideas you know and that was a fairly fairly new thing at the time you know it was you know that's not been going on for that long now you know the pipes are all over the place and and you know you and pipers are are rounded musicians who can do other things and think about music in a very um in a very um kind of deliberate um way but um in those days pipers tended to you know, especially pipe band pipers didn't really so much think of themselves as musicians, mm-hmm. but they were pipers, you know. And uh, you know, there, there's a real sense of not being able to read music beyond the pipe notation, and uh, and you know that type of thing. Uh, not talking about Gordon specifically here, but just a sort of general thing that was going in the sort of through the 80s um, and 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 into the early 90s mm-hmm. pipe tended to be um I wasn't I don't mean less educated but or or narrow but just um but pipers I suppose narrow is, is a good word I think pipers 
have broadened out an awful lot, you know. But Gordon definitely wasn't narrow. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So I think we'll we'll play a track from that album. Now this this is a set of just bays and mules from Gordon's Just for Seamus album and it's the Ramney Cayley. The Ness Pipers ending a set of just bays and reels from Gordon Duncan from his very first album, Just for Seamus. And I'm speaking to the producer of that album just now, Jim Sutherland. Jim, that was a, a lovely, lovely sound from both the pipes and the bazooki on that track. Can you remember much about what you did to, to achieve that sound? Um, yeah, kind of. I mean, it's, it is a long time ago, but uh, I, I remember the studio and I remember the process that we kind of went through. And it, this, the room that we recorded in was a fairly um, kind of damped room. It wasn't a live, particularly live space. And uh, we, you, that way, if you have a fairly damped room, uh, you know, fairly muffled room, but a big muffled room, then you can get the microphone further away from the pipes and it still sounds close. 
and that way you get a better sound on it. You don't have to go right up to the chanter type thing, you know. And of course, we will have we put a couple of stereo mics above the drones so we could get a bit of level. I mean, there's a whole kind of process these days that people go through of recording the drones separately from the chanters, mm -hmm. and we didn't do that. I mean, I, I don't like that. I mean, it's it's it, it, horses for courses. It's useful when you're wanting to drop in or do edits, and you want everything to be perfect. And uh, you know, but Gordon was pretty damn perfect anyway to be honest you know? <laughs> so it was never that much of an issue we didn't have to do stuff so that we could edit them you know and and to be honest with with performance i'm more inclined to 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 push people to be whole musicians and do a whole performance and yeah we'll edit between performances and things like that but i hate drop-ins i hate the idea of going to a bar in 23 and dropping in for three notes to fix something, you know, that's really not how, I don't think that's how music works. The way I tend to do things is I'll record parallel takes, so I'll record somebody playing right through something, um, right through the track, or right through a section of the track, and then I'll cut between takes. Now that does present challenges for the pipes if you're cutting into the drones. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, that, and that's why a lot of people like to record the drones separately. I think it's a different sounding instrument, though, when you do that. Uh, uh, you know, yeah, I like I, the whole sound of the instrument. Totally. I, think, I mean, there is stuff that happens between, uh, you know, physically in the room between the drones and the chanter that just won't happen if you've got them in two separate tracks. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, if, you want to, if you're doing something as simple as that track uh, that we just listened to, you really want to, you don't want to cut it, break it all down too much, you know. I mean, that was a live recording, mm -hmm. you know, um, with uh, with Ross in one space and Gordon in another, and, the, you know, head and on headphones, um, generally with one ear off uh, of the headphones so that you could um, uh, really hear the drones and hear the, your tuning live in the space and make sure that everything's working, you know, and know that it's there acoustically. And again, with it's something that I do with any instrument, really. I would like, I do tend to like people to try to play with an ear off their headphones so that they've got the natural dynamic. Because it's very easy to end up compressing stuff, and uh, 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 as it's going down, you might want to do that. And, and you know, by compressing, I mean limiting the dynamic range of something. And the pipes don't have a massive dynamic range anyway. Um, they're they're on or off really, um, <laughs> and uh, which is one of the challenges of the instrument um, in terms of making a whole album of it. You know, and if you're a piper, you might be quite happy listening to um, to forty to 50, or fifty minutes of of um, of, of bagpipes, um, but actually your your general punter kind of wants a bit of relief from that sometimes because yeah. uh, it's quite an uh, intense sound you know i know i'm talking to loads of pipers here and they'll be, <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> switching off now but, uh, but you know uh, it's it, it, this isn't this is uh, something to do with all the frequencies that the bagpipes generate i think yeah. you know kind of so it's good to get a sound that isn't too um get get a sound on the pipes that isn't too hard on your ears if you like that's not too oh. kind of tiring it's very easy to get things to be quite tiring by over brightening them and all of that type of thing and you i like a nice warm sound to, i mean i'm a great fan of the old shots and dykehead records when alec duthert was a drummer yeah and, and you know and i remember um i remember i can't remember who the pipe major was in those days but um i i, I do remember that um you know listen to those albums put on an album from those days and put on an album now where the pipes are all up around um where, where is it, 448 or something mm. like that, that the pipe bands are tuning to. And and so you've got this kind of high pitch um, going on and the drums are all higher, much higher pitched as well. And it's, you know, it's a bit like hitting a table. If you put, if you put those, if you put a, a pipe band drummer in a, in a dry room and, and get him or her to hit the drum once, it just kind of goes, duck, you know, yeah. it, it doesn't do anything. It, yeah. It's such a, bloody boring sound and so I, I'm, I, I'm but it's when you then put that into a, 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 in, a into a space and and the drum sets the space alive then it, you know so you hit the drum and, it goes, and it's really kind of something else so I, I think pipe band drums need a space to 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 um 
for the sound to kind of develop, you know. So, and I think it's the same thing with bagpipes. You know, with with Gordon, we recorded him in a in a dry space, so that we could get, as I say, a little bit further away from the the instrument and ha have a natural, close, tight sound. And my God, that um, first tune there, the his playing is so crisp. Yeah, it's amazing, actually. You know, do you think the equipment? That you used in those days and how it differs, you know, from tape to digital, that sort of stuff. Do you think that is anything to do with the sound? Yeah, 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 it will be. I mean, you do get, a, there's no doubt that you can get a warmer sound on tape, but you can get a warmer sound now with digital. You know, it, 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 I think in the early, I mean, we would have probably been using, I, I don't actually remember whether we recorded that on tape or on digital, because the digital, there was digital around then. And we and I know that we were using sort of Betamax type uh, tape, mm -hmm. digital tape to record on around then as well. Um, but I was also using the um, the multi-track um, uh, analog multi-track to record. So actually, I suspect that was probably anal analog recording. But it's it's possible that we were digital. Um, now the early days of digital were pretty brittle and 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 thin sounding. Um, and, um, you know, you had to, especially when computer recording came in and, you know, stuff, you know, CDs tended not to be very pleasant, you know. Um, and now CDs are great and digital sound is 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 fab. You know, I, I, to be honest, I, I would not really necessarily go back to tape. So I don't think that, t that tape per, per se um, really helped that... Um, recording particular particularly it's getting a good space where you've got a nice warm sound where there aren't a lot of overtones in the room you know if you if you stand in a room the room you're in for instance uh, uh, you know um, in a living room where the walls are fairly hard and it's got a hard ceiling and you you you, you kind of go oh, you'll hear different notes will make the room um, uh, reverberate in different ways and you, that's, you want to avoid a space like that because if you've got a space like that, you won't get a very balanced sound on the instrument, uh, whatever the instrument is that you're recording. So you want a, a well-treated, acoustically-treated space that's fairly big and fairly dead, and then you'll get that close sound. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean to say you don't want to record it in a hall and have ambient mics. It depends what you want, really. You know, Some people like that kind of sound. That's, that's um, fascinating you know. stuff, Jim. Um I think we'll we'll move on from the production side of things uh, to yourself as an actual musician, and we'll listen to a track first from the True North Orchestra. This is a track called um, "Children of Alba." All right. And is that uh, Carlos Nunez? Is that who's who's playing the pipes in this track? No, um, that on that one, uh, that recording, it's uh, Ross Ainsley, Ali Hutton, and Fraser Fifield. Right. Well. Um, well. Uh, and it was um, <clears throat> the, the they were all playing um, border pipes on it. They were all playing lowland pipes, and uh, because I find I do think that the it's easier. <clears throat> excuse me, in an orchestral situation, they're kind of more manageable. Yeah, um, <clears throat> they sound pretty much like big pipes. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and you know, in that kind of in, in that situation where you're. <clears throat> You want them to blend, and you want them to sit with other instruments, and you don't, you know, in a in an environment where, if you're in a, an acoustic space, and we recorded that track in um, the Glasgow Royal Concert Hall, it's an acoustic space, and a loud instrument like the pipes will set that space off, mm -hmm. and so it can be over, it can overpower an orchestra, um, and and it, also there are, you know, if there are any tuning issues at all. It, it it it's just a nightmare, you know, with strings. Yeah. Whereas I find the border pipes really work well, and they, they sit in with the strings really well. So anyway, that's who that's who played the pipes on that. Yeah, well, let's let's hear that track now. Hick of, hick of, 
Orchestra uh, featuring three Planet Pipe favourite pipers uh, on Border Pipes, uh, uh, Fraser Fifield, Ross Ainsley and Ali Hutton. Now, the True North Orchestra, Jim, tell us a bit about the, the overall project. Um, well, it's a, it, it, it's a, you know, it was a kind of a bit of a dream of mine to... Um, Make an orchestra that 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 could play um, um, music that was that came from the traditional idiom in some way. Now I'm not saying that that piece of music is a traditional or a traditional sounding piece, but actually all the musicians that play on it are interested in traditional music. M- many of them play it, um, and you know, as their livelihood. And others are, you know, some of the many of the orchestral musicians were chosen because they were um, interested in in it. So, and you know, for instance, the string section. The challenge of of of, of a, a lot of orchestral pieces that are written tend to have a bunch of traddy folk musicians, or you know, a bunch of folkies in the front, sitting in a row, and and an orchestra behind them, and you know, the orchestra backs backs them up, and my kind of idea really was to have a more integrated orchestra where it had folk musicians in the, in the orchestra and the string section would be a challenge there because you want to get players that can play um, can actually tune their vibrato into each other the way that a string section does, you get that lovely sound but also um, be able to play with a bit of a groove and a bit of a feel like a folk groove or other types of groove as well, you know, I just wanted to, uh, to create a flexible orchestra. So what we did was um, selected um, the string section from a mixture of folk musicians who had a bit of a classical uh, ear and could play um, uh, classically and, 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 or, you know, could, could handle at least um, 
being able to sit in that in with a section and and have create a kind of classical tone but also have a real folk feel and then we also created found classical musicians who were interested in in folk music mm-hmm. um, and it, so uh, and we sat basically sat people side by side we sat a folky next to a classical um, string player right through the desks of the orchestra and that way it was really interesting because you would get, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, people like Aidan O'Rourke and Chris Stout, Nana Wendy Stevenson, Deirdre Morris, and all these people all sitting playing next to classical players, and the, you, watching it, and the, you get the classical players looking at looking at the folkies and going, "No, oh, that's interesting how you do that," and the folkies looking at the classical players and going, oh, "That's interesting how you do that," yeah. and there were there was a real kind of sense of collaboration on bring, on getting the sound. And I still think that it would be good to have an orchestra like the True North Orchestra. I mean, it, it's, it was very much an orchestra. It was created for the gathering in 2009 to play the score for that. And I, I wrote the score. And, and it was a bit, it, it was kind of really important to me that, that um, it wasn't just a kind of classical orchestra sounding like, trying to sound like folkies, but it, it had that integrated feel, you know, that real kind of um, uh, sense of... of um, of tradition, if you like, within it, you know, uh, in a way. Um, so, yeah, kind of really lovely project. I think the problem that we have with these types of projects is it's really hard to sustain them. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, you know, you've got an orchestra that's a 40-piece orchestra, which that one is, um, and it's a, a freelance orchestra. You're paying everybody freelance rates to do a gig. Um, and, you know, people aren't going to set time aside well, people did. People are very kind to me with these projects, and they do set time aside where they might go and earn more playing with Lau or playing with their band, whatever it is, you know. And but they do set time aside to, to actually do it because they enjoy working in groups with other musicians. There's something really social about it as well, and I suppose maybe they like the music as well. Yeah. Um, but actually, in the in the long term, to try and sustain something like that in the current sort of funding climate is very difficult. You know, it's really difficult. I'd love to get the orchestra again together, but um, you know, it, the, a project will come come up where where we can pull the orchestra together again, or a version of it. Well, I'm uh, pre- pretty sure that I speak for myself and all the listeners that our fingers are definitely crossed for that sort of <laughs> event to happen. Uh, now, another big project of yours is something that I'm not actually all that familiar with, but I should be, given that it's full of pipers, and that is La Banda Europa. Um, oh yeah, which uh, I've probably pronounced a bit wrong. Is it Euro- Europa? Europa. Europa, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. Europa, um, which translates as uh, the European band, really. Just, just does it, that's all it means. Um, and yeah, I mean that's a kind of fabulous project, really. In in some ways, you know, it it was a sort of dream project for me because it it, it actually, funnily enough, it 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 grew out of something else that I did with Gordon. Um, Gordon Duncan and um, in uh, 2003 I think it would be maybe or four um, I got a job working on a film called Festival and um, I uh, Annie Griffin who was the director of the film came to me with a CD of a Samana Santa band um, and she said, you know, what? can you do something with this? Can you write some music for this type of thing? This is a kind of bugle band, really, kind of, uh, the, but these bugles were pre-1920s mm-hmm. instruments, and they're bugles with one valve on them, so they actually, not like a trumpet that's got three valves, so essentially it's a kind of very interesting gap scale that they play. And because they were pre-1920s instruments, they, were, they played old, old pitch, which is about a quarter of a tone above concert, and um, and uh, it, which is interesting because that's the same as the bagpipes, and uh, so the bagpipes are essentially now playing old pitch, although some of them have risen even above that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, the, the pipe band wars of of um, pitch is, I think, slightly bonkers. But I've kind of talked about that already. But um, uh, so. But actually, it worked in my favour because I was able to bring twelve pipers, including Gordon and Ian um, uh, Duncan, over uh, from uh, what then was the Drambuie um, pipe band, and uh, over to um, Seville, 
and uh, get them to play with this 80-piece Samana Santa band playing um, these three different sizes of of keyed bugles um, and the, and used the Samana Santa band's drums rather than using pipe band drums. And these were really kind of throaty, um, rope-tuned snare drums, again, kind of medieval snare drums, um, <clears throat> and, um, and 12 pipers. So we had, you know, 100 and odd people in the studio um, for that, and we basically recorded them on one stereo pair of microphones for the film. And uh, but I remember, uh, you know, I wrote about 17 cues, music cues for for them to play, and um, it's quite a kind of screaming um, sound, and the, you know, the pitch is kind of whoa, a bit kind of all over the place. Uh, but there's something really kind of exciting about that and wild and and. And to me, there was something really European about it. I mean, these Samana Santa bands, they exist to to essentially parade the effigies and uh, statues of the saints around um, to, on, on <coughs> Samana Santa, which means Saints Week in mm-hmm. Spain. And uh, they play this really stately music, this really kind of dark, stately music while, they, while these processions are happening through the narrow streets of Seville. And it's just something that would raise the hairs on the back of your neck, you know. Um, and the, the musicians didn't read music generally, so I had to kind of record the different parts, or five, kind of five-part music for them to play, and we sent the parts over. They learned the parts, went over to Seville. We marched a pipe band into the studio, straight into the recording room, and... Um, and got I got the twelve pipers to stand somewhere in the middle of the band, thinking bagpipes are quite loud, you know, and uh, I'll and set up a stereo pair of microphones for them to play, and right and so right off we go. Let's have a try and I listened to the went through the control room and listened to the output of these microphones. You couldn't hear the pipes because <laughs> the cornetas were so loud, the yeah. cornetas bugles, and. Um, so we had to move the pipers to the front, which is something I've never really had to do before with with uh, twelve pipers, you know, because you couldn't hear them. There was a quiet, but there was something about the sound that was incredibly European to me, bringing these pipes and these southern Spanish um, instruments together, um, and and I just thought, wow, I want to do some more of this type of thing, and my uh, kind of dream band, if you like, La Banda Europa grew out of that and and I got a Creative Scotland award in I don't know was it 2005 or 6 I think to put together La Banda Europa and uh, and we, we put it together actually for the first time to celebrate St George's Day uh, believe it or not in um, in in uh, Gateshead and because on St George's Day in Gateshead it was a very kind of the 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 kind of far right, if you like, the BNP and and a bunch of skinheads, um, essentially went out paraded themselves. They had these processions on St George's Day to celebrate the kind of um, that in- Englishness, uh, but only in the kind of way that the BNP would be celebrating Englishness, and and so. The idea was that we would put together um, this amazing kind of band of different cultural instruments, indigenous instruments from all over Europe, um, including seven different kinds of bagpipes, um, to celebrate Englishness as an outward-looking, um, multicultural, multifaceted sort of society and mm-hmm. culture. And uh, and that's exactly what we did. And, and we put on this concert of La Bande Europa, which is a 35-piece band. And we've got Nickel Harpers from Sweden. Um, Nickel Harpers is a bit like a hardy-gardy. It's played with a bow. It's a keyed fiddle. And we had hardy-gardies, four hardy-gardies, four Nickel Harpers. We had um, a couple of cellos. Then the brass section included um, Balkan brass players, a um, couple of guys um, uh, from from um, Serbia, actually, um, and who played brass, and then clarinets, Armenian guys uh, playing clarinet and a Serb, and they also played the, the duduk, which is an Armenian uh, reed instrument, mm-hmm. and they pl- would play zurnap, which is another very loud uh, Ar- uh, Armenian instrument, a bit like a bombard. and. Um, the the Serbian bagpipes featured, the Slovakian bagpipes featured in that, um, the Scottish bagpipes featured in that, the um, uh, we had bagpipes from Spain, the Gaitas, 
we had two different kinds of gaita. We had the um, Asturian gaita and the Galician gaita, which are slightly different um, from each other. Um, and uh, and uh, you know bagpipes and reed instruments like the the dulfina from the middle to the uh, Valencia region of Spain, which is a very 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 high pitched, uh, higher about uh, an octave higher than the um, bombard type of bombard really. So it's kind of like a reed band really with some strings and a fair bit of brass. You know, good um, bottom end with bass trombone tuba and uh, stuff like that going on with the Carnix in the band as well. Oh, and concertina accordion from uh, uh, Austria. Um, you know, just, uh, I've probably missed out something, but amazing lineup, an amazing bunch of people. So I put that together and um, we we played that St. George's Day as, a, as the sort of antidote to the, the far right fascist um, Parade and that that was good. It worked, and we had a lo lovely turnout of people who, who celebrated, um, you know, uh, people coming together from different cultures um, and communicating through music. Um, and we then took it up to Falkirk. And we played in Falkirk after that at, um, at at a festival in Falkirk, and we did we've done one or two other things. And and uh, recently we played in Marseille, which was a wonderful um, event. Um, and where we played um, outside the um, the station, the Garrison Charles, uh, Saint Charles's station, um, in in uh, Marseille, and uh, there's a kind of natural um, auditorium, these big steps, and we had about three thousand people sitting on these steps, and the band Europa playing at the foot of these steps, um, uh, uh, and uh, in the evening, and it was just the most amazing thing, and then the uh, Labanda led the we started off the day by the, splitting up the band on trains and we got them up because our, the band is all about people traveling in a way nobody yeah. comes from everybody lives in the countries they come from so yeah. there's a real challenge of getting people together and so we, we got everybody there we rehearsed for a couple of days and then we put them up we drove we trained them outside of marseille and we put them on different trains coming into the city and we got everybody to play in small sort of regional group <laughs> trains and uh, like a flash mob before there was a flash. <laughs> Nobody had heard of flash mobs when we did, we did this. And, um, and then we got them to come out of the train and we, we got them to play in the station mm -hmm. in, in, in other sort of uh, groups. And, you know, you'd get the Slovakian Fujara flute, which is a, a two-meter-long flute, um, which plays a bit like somewhere between a bass flute and a shakuhachi as you blow on the overtones. In one corner, the Armenian guys playing their zurnas and and uh, and drums. In another corner, the the hardy gurdy somewhere else. The, you know, Scots guys somewhere else. Um, quite amazing. Uh, and then we led the audience out, out and down these steps. Played a big concert at the foot of the steps. That was really well received. Run, wonderful event. And then we led them round to the back of the station where we had a kind of uh, nightclub under the stars with uh, members of the band dancing and the audience dancing and just a really lovely um, uh, lovely kind of event altogether in Marseille. Really, so it's a beautiful band. Um, there's stuff online at um, labandaeuropa.com. Um, you'll find that just by going to my website. So if you type in to Google Jim Sutherland, you'll, you'll, you can hear all this stuff there if you want to hear, hear things. You know. Great. Well, Jim, that is an extremely interesting chat you've had with me today. Uh, we're actually going to play out now with a, a very traditional bagpiping track, and it's one of the world's greatest pipers playing one of your tunes in a set. This is Angus McCall, and the tune in the set is the Easy Club Reel, which is, I think, quite an old tune from you. Could you remember composing that and why you composed it? Well, I remember I used to play in a band called Easy Club, and, and um, initially I wrote that tune... Um, as a sort of signature tune for the band, really, and uh, it was written. Uh, uh, wasn't written for the pipes. It was written really for the fiddle, I suppose. It was just written. I mean, I didn't play the pipes or the fiddle. Although I loved the pipes, and I've written a lot of tunes that you could say were pipe tunes. That, you know, two four marches and the, the likes, and six eights and reels and jigs and hornpipes and airs. Never written a pibroch. I think that would be a bit um, a little bit. Um, a presumptuous uh, to write a pibroch, but uh, 
But um, and and the Easy Club reel then I don't know. Uh, Ian Duncan wrote a setting. Funnily enough, coming back to the the Duncan family, mm-hmm. uh, Ian Duncan wrote, wrote a setting of the Easy Club reel for me, which I put in the book Pipe Setting. And uh, and I know that different people play very different versions of the Easy Club reel. Now I, I walk down Princess Street and hear the Pipers busking playing it. I walk into um, a bar in Chicago and there's an Irish band playing it. Or I go into Sandy Bells and there's people playing it in a session, um, and really, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting tune because it's kind of entered the tradition, and I, I, I certainly know of four or five different versions of it now, um, and it, often it does get credited as traditional, mm-hmm. which is a bit frustrating sometimes. But frustrating, really, but but thrilling, I'd imagine. Yeah, there's something really exciting about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hear Angus McCall playing it in a, in a very traditional. Um, way of playing. So Jim, thanks again so much for your insight into recording and a great wee chat this afternoon on Planet Pipe. My pleasure.
fascinating stuff there. And my thanks again go to Jim for joining me. That's it for another week on the Tartan Rocket. Check out our sponsors, that's the Piping Centre, and you can find their new e-learning website at elearning.thepipingcentre.co.uk. Follow me on Twitter, it's at Lorne McD, L-O-R-N-E-M-A-C-D. Get in touch, studio at planetpipe.com as ever. Uh, And if you're listening on Celtic Music Radio or online through iTunes, uh, do be sure to check out the website for loads more uh, great stuff at planetpipe.com. We're going to play out with a bit of moothy music now. That's the Scottish Celtic harmonica, and it comes from a new CD from the legend that is Donald Black. Here he is with some pipe marches, both 3-4 and 4-4, starting with Talmine Bay and then the hills of Argyll. I'm Lormont Dougal, and I'll be looking forward to you joining me again soon on the Tartan Rocket to Planet Pipe. <laughs>